Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of In the Barn. I'm Robin. And I'm Kelsey. And in today's episode, we are covering part two of the George H. Morris story. This includes his rise to a godlike status during the 90s and 2000s, and how a political change outside the horse world and a friend ended up leading to his downfall. This book, George's story as he has finally chosen to tell it, gives us a look behind the curtain, exposing his many faces. There is the General George Patton-like leader with a sharp interest in history and an army-like precision in identifying targets and moving forward towards them as well as a dedication to methodically and mechanical process. Then there is the maniacal mentality that George is notorious for, a compulsion for control coupled with a tendency to go berserk or become irate for seemingly no reason, I might say there's always a reason, and sudden, vital, temperamental behavior. And some will find it surprising to meet George as a fast-living playboy who in a time when it was not accepted by many to adopt or pursue a gay lifestyle came out in a way that allowed him to abide by the strict boundaries of his professional life while still exploring his creative, tempestuous, spontaneous self. Not an easy balance, as it is evidenced in many of the stories you'll find in the pages ahead. I've known George in all his faces since 1984. He has been like a second father to me. Well, there are many of us who have withered in the throes of one of his tantrums or withered in the face of a scathing remark, there is one who ultimately benefits from his perfectionism, attention to detail, and desire to get it right. And indeed, that is the horse. So that lovely little passage that I just shared is from the beginning of George's book. It is the foreword that is written by Chris Kapler, which is, I think Chris Kapler, I'm pretty sure in 2018 at least he was still running Hunter Den. so he is like George's protege or like he's betrayed he trained with George he spent a lot of time with George we'll talk about him a little bit in this episode as well but that is his close personal friend who wrote that lovely passage about him including how this is all about the horse it's also just a weird passage like how he talks about the many faces the maniacal it's not a friendly description of anybody. I don't think I would ever describe a friend that way. No, he makes him sound like he is like a Jekyll and Hyde, which is like a mental disorder. Like that's not, he just sounds like he is very, the in control general like is so, that is, I feel like so how many, I think we said this in the first episode, it sounds like a serial killer, right? Like they have that very controlled side. Everything is perfection. Everything needs to be just so. And then they have the opposite side where they are like, psychotic (laughs) and they go berserk and just that's what it sounds like to me but that's his friend how his friend describes him (laughs) yikes (laughs) so before we dive too far into this episode i do want to give our quick disclaimers we are going to be talking about the allegations against george and this episode will give you a warning when we get closer to that uh and so you can skip like 15 seconds ahead or whatever if you don't want to listen to it but i will be reading some of the victim's statements so that you understand what the allegations are and then the other disclaimer is that we have chosen not to use the victims names in this episode the reason being is that like there's a lot of reasons for this and I know when you are telling these types of stories you have to be really careful that you are giving the victims you know sort of the respect uh, that they deserve and ensuring that their story is being told and not just the story of the predator or the person who committed the crime the goal of this podcast episode is to demonstrate that george george morris the person that we 
have known is not the person we know. And so we're not necessarily telling the victim stories. We are going to be telling, talking about them and providing all the information we know about them. But we're not going to say their names. And again, one victim has publicly come forward. The second victim has been publicly outed, uh, but has been granted permission by the courts not to be named. And then the third victim is actually deceased. And it was, it's his pe- like friends and family that have spoken out and said that he was a victim. And so because like he hasn't, he has not taken on that label or like, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like, because he has not come forward as a victim because he's deceased. I don't want to put that. Because <laughs> he's dead. Right. I don't want to, I just don't want to put that on him. So we decided it would just be easier if we don't name any of the victims, even though like it doesn't take too much digging on the internet to find out who they are. No, I definitely, I think that makes sense. And then I also want to say is that I see this comment in some form or another on every single post about George Morris, where people call into question the victims and why they didn't come forward sooner. And I just want to go ahead and say that it is not anyone's place other than the victim as to when they decide to come forward. Based on the reaction you saw from the horse community who all rallied behind George and shamed the victims, I think it's pretty clear as to why they didn't come forward sooner, as well as when someone has endured abuse of any type, it takes a while for you to come to terms with that and to be willing to share that with others. And that includes making the proper reports okay so one more thing before we dive into the episode because you and i made this connection like the other day and i'm not sure if our listeners made it but i wanted to share it because i thought it was really interesting oh is it the phelps thing it is the phelps thing i want to share it at the top just so i don't forget so if you guys remember from part one robin told a story about one of jimmy williams students who came to ride in a george morris clinic that student his name was mason phelps he was the guy who ended up slipping acid into george's mashed potatoes (laughs) so like all around great great kid you'll also remember that the statement i shared at the very beginning was from george's pr firm phelps sports it was that phelps mason phelps jr who one of Jimmy Williams' students who went on to start Phelps Sports, the PR firm. Uh, he actually ended up passing last May of a heart attack. So that happened. But I just thought that was really interesting that like his PR firm is run by someone who, at least as a teenager, had some, made some questionable choices. I'm sure as he matured and became an adult, he uh, never made another questionable choice in his life. With that, I think we left off somewhere around the 90s, somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s. And that's where I'm going to pick up is starting with uh, what George was up to in the 90s. So one of the things I did want to do with my portion is I wanted to share articles at the start of each decade so we could kind of see how the public was perceiving George and sort of that impression uh, that we were getting from George or that George was leaving on the community. Because I think a lot of us, especially in the 90s and 2000s, may not have been show jumpers, but we definitely knew who George was. And so I think it's kind of important to see what these articles were that were being written about him at that time. With that, I'm going to share an article that was written by Chris Hector, who loves George. And I'm sure he still is posting stuff about George, even after the allegations have come forward very favorably about him. Uh, So this article was published in the Horse Magazine in April 1988, and it's obviously available online today. But this is called George Morris, Teacher Genius. 
The man is a phenom, an artist and a teacher who has changed the face of the show jumping world. There is scarcely a top writer in the United States today who has not studied at the feet of the waspish New Yorker, George Morris. Four out of the five members of the gold medal team in, at the Los Angeles Olympics were Morris pupils. And the current top combination on the world scene, the group they call George Morris All-Girls Team of Anne Krasinski, Catherine Birdsdale, Joanne Schaffenberg, and Katie Mohan Prudent is proving over and over over again that George Morris dictum that good stylish writing is effective competition writing. This article goes on. I believe George was in Australia giving a clinic um, during the 80s and this person like interviews him at the clinic and summarizes the clinic. He asked George a couple different questions. <laughs> One of them he asked is like what are his interests right now since at the end of the 80s George was transitioning from his like second attempt at being a professional writer into being a full-time coach in the 90s. So what if his like questions were like what is his priorities moving forward? So this is his response. Oh, as a teacher, my priority hasn't been writing since 1960. I think I'm more gifted as a teacher. I'm a very good writer, still a very good writer at competition. I won a class at Madison Square Garden last month, and I was second at Spruce Meadows, the biggest show in the world, just before that. So I'm still a very good writer, but my greatest gift and greatest contrib contribution is as a teacher. And that is definitely like how he saw himself going forward from, from this point on. So the 1990s kicked off with something that was a really exciting event. Uh, for the first time ever, they were having what's called the World Equestrian Games, or WAG, as it was lovingly called for such a long time, <laughs> but no longer exists. Uh, the WAG was super successful that year. They had like 300,000 tickets that were sold. I think they had like a billion viewers on TV in the 1990s, which is amazing. Um, they had more than 400 athletes from 37 countries that all made the trip to Sweden in the summer of 1990. And there were six disciplines, jumping, eventing, dressage, vaulting, driving, and endurance. So all this to say is that being on the WAG team was a really big deal. Because it wasn't something that had been done before. It was like at a mini Olympics. So people really wanted to be on this team, okay? So just to preface, this is definitely George's version of events. And I'll add some clarity in a second because I do have some outside sources. But I'm thinking George may remember things a bit differently than they actually occurred. Uh-oh. So leading up to the 1990 WAG, George Morris was one of several selectors at that time for the high-performance team. Um, at that time, Frank Capote was the chef d'equipe or the manager slash coach for the Olympic team. George Morris was a selector, but he also, I think, co-managed and co-chefed like with Frank a lot of the time. Um, and then other selectors that he mentions are Linda Allen, Conrad Homefield, and Katie Pruitt. I'm sure you recognize some of those names. <laughs> George writes in his book that at this time, it was common for selectors to have students who were trying out for the team or were shortlisted for the team. He refers to it as be like that it wasn't a squeaky clean selection process like it is today, which definitely makes me think it's not squeaky clean today. <laughs> definitely throws some decisions into question. Oh, for sure. And I think each team does it completely differently. So I think show jumping does it completely differently than eventing does it or dressage does it. Because I do know that um, I think all team selections are somewhat selective and somewhat objective at this point. So show jumping up until this point was completely selective, which means they were just picking the riders they thought were best for the team. And obviously those riders were just like nobody riders, but it wasn't based on any like point system or placing system. It was just like these are the riders and the horses that we think are best. In 1990, two of Georgia's all-star lady riders were shortlisted for the team. 
compete. That included Ann Krasinski um, and Joan Schaffenberger. So they were competing with other writers. I think there were six that were competing that were on the short list. And they were trying to decide who were going to be the four on the team because there's still a four-person team at that point and then who were going to be the two alternates. So they were also competing with Joe Fargus, Greg Best, and someone by the name of BZ Patton. And Debbie Dolan was the other person who was competing. So Debbie Dolan was not one of Georgia's students. She rode with Joe Fargus and Conrad Homefield. Oh. Trying to determine who was going to get the last spot was left down. BZ was going to be an alternate. And it was trying to decide who was going to join BZ as an alternate and who was going to be the fourth rider. It was between Ann Krasinski and Debbie Dolan. So it was George versus his protege, essentially. And Joe Fargus. Joe Fargus was already like on the team, and so was Greg at that point. And Joan Scharf, 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 oh my God, Joan. Um, <laughs> and so Joan was already, they were already on the team, and so it was like trying to fill that last spot. So yes, Joe Fargus and Conrad Homefield were, had been Debbie's uh, instructor at that point. And like he said, it was common for people to be selectors and have students who were trying out for the team. So according to George, Frank wanted to take Greg, Joe, Anne, and Joan as the riders. So that's what they're sitting around. They're in Europe. They've been traveling. And Frank says, according to George, I want Greg, Joe, Anne, and Joan as the riders. And then Debbie and BZ are going to be the alternates. Again, according to George, this was the li- this lineup was based off of Anne's recent success in the European shows. So I did see this confirmed in other locations that apparently Anne had been much more successful than Debbie in European shows. And George puts a ton of weight on a writer's success in Europe. He thinks it's much more applicable to the games uh, and to like the Olympics and to these big competitions. Their success show jumping in Europe. And I don't necessarily disagree with him. I, I'm sure he's actually probably right on that one. Debbie did stronger in the U.S. shows and came in much higher going into Europe, ranked higher than Anne, but Anne did better in Europe. So the choice was to put Anne on the team. Apparently, this decision didn't sit well with Conrad and Linda. They actually really wanted Debbie on the team. And George says that like Linda was on the fence. But basically, after an argue, an hour of arguing in the middle of their arena, like out in public in front of everyone, Linda grabs a briefcase, pulls out a bunch of documents, and begins to explain that these are the rules and this is the criteria for how to select a team. And based off of these rules, Debbie is on the team. And everyone was like, okay. I guess that's how it is. Like Debbie's on the team and an alternate. And the others were George, Frank, and Katie, who were apparently like, we really want Anne, but I guess we have to follow these rules. George panics, okay? (laughs) George is like, no, (laughs) Anne has to be on the team. He runs back to his car. They're in Europe. He speeds back to his hotel in Luxembourg to call Bill Strankus and Vince Murphy. And as his quote is, I jumped to my car car to speed back to my hotel in Luxembourg City to call Bill Strankus and Vince Murphy. It was important that the USET Executive Committee understood how Debbie ended up on the team despite the majority of selectors feeling she shouldn't have made it. No one else is on this phone call with George. Frank didn't come with him. Katie didn't come with him. Just George yelling at the executive committee over the phone saying Anne needs to be on the team. 
again, this is the same man who believes it is his job to educate the judges. It just sounds like a spoiled little boy that didn't get his way. And now he's throwing a hissy fit, calling all the top names he knows to get, pull his weight to get what he wants. Him and Bill are really good friends. I've never heard of Vince Murphy before, but Bill obviously is like a legend. Him and George are really close, even though I think Bill's like 10 years older than him. They'd been really close and like grew up riding on the team back in like the 50s and 60s. So he's saying, he calls them and he's trying to explain. He wants the executive committee to understand that like not everyone agreed. We didn't come to this decision unanimously. And I really think that you guys should weigh in on this decision. I just want you to know. I just want you to know that we're not all in agreement. The executive committee, after hearing this, goes, oh, well, those documents that Linda and Conrad have aren't the actual rules. That's what they want to propose, and those would be future rules. Uh, But you're right, Anne should be on the team. So in 1990, at the 1990 World Equestrian Game, it was in Stockholm, Greg Best and his horse Jem Twist, George Fargus and Mill Pearl, Anne Krasinski and Starman and Joan Scheffenberger and Victor were on the team in Stockholm, and they finished fourth. That did not end the debate. Okay, like this is not over. This is a civil war, as George refers to it. And this is the civil war that cost him his friendship with Conrad. This civil war ended up leading to the format and how team the team was selected was challenged. So George says in his book that like a lot of this, the civil war was started because people told Debbie she was a victim and she developed a victim mentality. And that's what led to her family suing USCT due to the bias of the team selection. August 13th, 1990, there was a New York Times article posted that was titled Sports World Specials, Horse Show, Jumping Squabble. So this is the article that was written uh, in 1990 after the World Equestrian Games. Given the squabble over who represented the United States team in show jumping at the 1990 World Equestrian Games, which wound up in Stockholm last week, you would have thought it was the riders who did the jumping and the horses who hung on for dear life rather than the other way around. So like subtle shade. Someone doesn't like show jumping. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. It was the battle between Starman and VIP for the fourth berth that touched off a lawsuit in New Jersey. The lawsuit was filed in Superior Court in Somerset County near the USET headquarters in Gladstone on behalf of VIP's writer Debbie Dolan after the equestrian team's executive committee picked Anne Krasinski and Starman. Dolan, the 26-year-old daughter of Charles Dolan, the owner of Long Island-based cable vision system, thought she and VIP had been irrevocably named to the team after the Devon Grand Prix in Pennsylvania in June. Some of the selectors, it seems, had decided among themselves that anyone who received 10 votes after Devon would be guaranteed a place on the Stockholm team, even though the official selection procedures published last December said that the six competitors to be picked after Devon would merely be on the shortlist, and the final selections to be made on the basis of the later two later European competitions. So this is likely the rules that Linda and Conrad had pulled out where they wanted the team to be decided after Devin with 10 votes. And the 10 votes is the 10 selectors. So the way George phrases the story is that there was only four selectors and they union or four or five, including Frank. The majority wanted Anne on the team. But there was 10 selectors. Only four went to Europe. So there's no way George could have known what the majority wanted when the majority was not present. Oh, how weird. He likes to leave out information like that. Yes. It's re- he do- Nowhere does he mention that there was more than the selectors he personally names. He names Frank the chef, him, 
Linda Allen, who was the president, Katie uh, Prudent, uh, and Conrad Homefield. So those five, including Frank, in June, before they went to Europe, everyone unanimously had voted for Debbie. That is correct. So they never had unanimously voted for Ann Krasinski to be on it. Correct. So how did George come to the conclusion that the majority voted for Anne when the majority wasn't there and the people that were there, three, three voted for Anne, seven voted for Debbie. Yeah, it's not very unanimous. <laughs> That's not, well, it's not unanimous, but it's not, it's also not a majority. So then he runs back to the hotel and calls the executive committee to, and says in his book, he says the majority wanted Anne. Weird. Also inaccurate. Also inaccurate. So the article continues, Indeed, when the five selectors who had gone to Europe met in Luxembourg on July 15th, four of them favored Krasinski and Starman, who had finished ahead of Dolan and VIP in the European shows. But after someone suggested that Dolan would sue if she were not picked, she was named to the team. But the executive committee, which was has the last word, concluded that the selectors had not followed the published procedures, voted unanimously to give the nod to Krasinski and Starman. So it sounded like the executive committee which is what who George calls and admits to calling was the final determination and they voted unanimously for Anne. How shady. Interestingly, Chris Dolan, Debbie's dad, ended up writing a letter to the editor a few days later to uh, correct some inaccuracies in that article I just read. So he writes the the article titled Jumping Squabble uh, contained numerous claims that are incomplete and incorrect concerning United States equestrian team's treatment of Debbie Dolan. Three facts that were omitted are, one, Debbie Dolan was unanimously selected for the U.S. World Cup team under USET rules. She was actually told you are on the team. Just to get that like out there, she was told you are on the team. Congratulations. That's why this is such a big deal. Oh my God. Two, the executive committee of the USCT capriciously played favorites when they knocked Debbie Dolan off the team just eight days before the World Championships and replaced her with Anne. Three, the executive committee does not have the right under the team's own rules to select team members. Miss Dolan and VIP were initially chosen to join the U.S. team by unanimous decision of the entire selection committee shortly after Devon Grand Prix. Grand Prix held on May 31st. On July 15th, after Zurich and Luxembourg trials, the selection committee again unanimously selected Miss Dolan and VIP to represent the United States at Stockholm. The executive committee had no power unilaterally to substitute a rider and horse for the ones chosen by the selection committee for reasons best known to itself. The power of selection is logically given to the selection committee. The executive committee can partake in the approval process, process, but cannot, under USCT rules, unilaterally select members. And George admits in his book, he was the one that did this, that he's the one. No one else was in the room in his version of the story. He ran to the executive committee. He ran to his best friend, Bill, and said, put Anne on the team. She, see, it's just another instance of him rubbing elbows to get ahead and to get what he wants. How could you tell someone that they're on the team and then go on and be like, psych, just kidding. I, my feelings got hurt. I actually wanted another one of my students on the team, not you. Because George plays the long game and we'll see this in another Olympics. I think the goal was always to have Anne on the team and he knew that he was going to have to do it in a roundabout way to get her on. Because why did you vote unanimously the entire time? Why does everyone keep saying that all 10 agreed, which includes George, 
But suddenly you had to run and go get Anne on the team. I think he always planned on getting Anne on the team. Yeah. No, that definitely sounds like it. Also, it's really interesting because this is another one of those things that he – this is one of his favorite things to claim is that he's always had like two riders on the Olympic team or he always is producing Olympic level riders. Yep. Well, how can you say that if you're having to rub elbows to get them on the team and having to pull shady business deals to ensure that your riders end up on the team? Yeah, no, that's absolutely what he's doing in order to keep all those feathers in his hat. He has to not play fair. And went to four Olympics. And, like, is a good rider. Let's not, like, I don't want to diminish her accomplishments at all. No, no. I just think that George did a lot of shady stuff to get Anne on the team. I have a real hard time with, like, some of the stories he shares about Anne riding. Like, I, there's just a lot of stuff that he shares about Anne. Constantly, they, I, I don't understand his relationship with her. I, there's so much shade he throws at her constantly that it is so it's so weird I don't know it's like he wants her to win and do really well and then he just like I don't know their relationship's weird yeah well his relationship with a lot of his students is weird yeah that's true so I did find a quick summary of the case that Debbie did take so she did sue and then she lost the first lawsuit so she sued again or like moved it up appealed it in Superior Court but essentially USET um, AHSA the American Horse Association did win and the reason being is that Debbie actually we saw this happen in another case where I think we talked about Dr. Cook and the bitless bridle is that these are independent organizations the courts really don't have a ton of jurisdiction in them to make these decisions and in fact the the court summary includes you know a plaintiff who is required to rely on a non-judicial procedure is not remedyless and we agree with judge posner that courts are hardly suitable to determine the eligibility or the procedure for determining the eligibility of athletes to participate on our behalf in international competitions so her she did end up losing because she there were other ways she could have gone about trying to rectify this situation. I mean, a week after Stockholm, there was a lawsuit in court, like they had filed a suit. So it's clear that she didn't try to take any additional procedures with USET. But I think you can imagine that like she probably didn't think USET was going to do anything to rectify the situation. They were definitely on Georgia's side. It was also dismissed as she didn't propose any like actions in the uh, lawsuit. She was just like, this is the facts agree with me, which is great. But then the court also has to have like an action to do. So one other interesting fact about the Stockholm uh, World Equestrian Games is I found this briefly mentioned in a 2018 Chronicle of the Horse article. I am so annoyed I cannot find anything else on this. Animal activists spread flyers around Stockholm, but the organizers assured media that animals were being treated well, including a relatively new FEI system of yellow cards used for warning for abuse of a horse, among other things. A dressage rider received a yellow card for riding in the main stadium before the competition started. And Krasinski got one for spurring a horse. And a Hungarian driver also received one for excessive whipping. What did Anne do? That was so bad, she got a yellow card. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. And you can't find any other information about can't it? Can't find anything else on it. That is the only mention is it's a 2018 that's like recapping Stockholm uh, WAG. And that's the only mention of it I can find. Interestingly, I don't remember because I've got two George books and maybe it was an article um, where George is very anti the new blood rules. So if a horse is bleeding from the mouth or bleeding from the spurs, he thinks that's ridiculous. 
that the sport has gotten too soft and a little bit of blood is fine. <sighs> what was Anne doing that you could justify blooding a horse's side? And repeatedly in this book, George talks about having Anne abuse the horse she's riding. I'm sorry, that's the only way I can see it when he is talking about uh, her horse was getting a little spooky, so he instructed her to just whip him randomly so he didn't know when it was coming and would stay alert and on his game. Also, Anne is not the only student that he instructs in this way. Throughout the entire book, he talks about students of his that he refers to horses as being mean horses and then explains students punching the horse in the face and never once does he reprimand the student for this type of behavior. Like, George... Why would he? Remember the story with Warbride? He did it himself. He beat his horse into not ever wanting to jump again. Like, he uses fear. And you go ahead and go to YouTube and Google George Morris. He uses fear to teach the horses to jump. He has this whole method of teaching the horse to jump a liver pool that includes stopping the horse in front of the Liverpool, whipping it several times, and then coming back to jump it. Never once does he even try to see all these horses look like they would jump the Liverpool. They do not act like horses who have never seen the Liverpool, and he would rather have them stop, whip the horse, and then come back. And that's in 2010. Over and over again, he endorses abusive behaviors and abusive riding techniques. Like, it is not just one student in the 90s. It is a plethora of students throughout the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and even to his clinics in the 2000s. Like, this is not, this is the behavior that he's in support of. How do we ever think that he was a great horseman? Right. That's why I read Chris's quote in the beginning, because Chris says the only, like, the person that benefited the most was the horse. I don't, I don't see it. I can't, I can't see it. I, this was never about the horse. No. George only cares about winning and medals. That is all he cares about. And I've been reading his other, it's not his other book necessarily. It's the, because every round counts, it's 50 of the best chronicle of the horse um, columns. And I'm going to share a couple of these. George wants to be a celebrity so badly. He wants to be famous so badly. And these stories and just horrible because he wants they people keep talking about the system that he wants and the improvements he wants to make because it's for the horse. No, it is so he can be treated like a celebrity. That is all he wants is to be treated like a celebrity. And it's just it's insane to me. It's wild. And it also is just it's how are we reading these stories secondhand from George being able to clearly identify abuse and abusive tactics and yet he, like he was never reprimanded for it other than twice where he was suspended once for doping the horse and once for jumping the horse over a jump with wire but like how did constantly the USCT USEF turn a blind eye to him because it's the same thing with Marilyn Little if you win you can do whatever you want and George has proven his system successful. No one can deny that. I'm not going to even pretend to deny that. George's methods are successful. He has taken many a rider to the top level, whether he gets them after they've already been trained or trains them, gets them a horse, whatever he does, he can get them there. I'm not going to deny that. And if you can do that, USET, USEF will look the other way. I mean, yeah, his methods are effective, but at the cost of the horse. Absolutely. And he has a thousand and one excuses as to why, because going into like coming out of the 70s and 80s, the U.S. really was on top show jumping wise. They were we were really successful. 
going forward, the 90s and the 2000s has been quite the slump for show jumping. And he blames it on everything. He says, we've got great horses and great riders, but this is you know, the shows aren't good enough. You know, there's not enough free food at the shows. The like XYZ is the reason why we're not, you know, our indoor circuit's not good enough. Or we have too many competitions, right? We're over jumping the horses. Horses don't need to jump that much. Like he has every, he just blames everything. It's it's the, it's the not, it's not enough free food for competitors. It's not a, uh, a good atmosphere at the horse shows. It's not, we're not competing at Madison Square Garden anymore. Those are the reasons we're not winning. Yikes. Yeah, it's bizarre. Anyways. (laughs) Much of the 90s were like slightly uneventful for George, party and drug wise. Thank God when I finally got to the second half of the book and I was pleasantly surprised that we actually just talked about horses and horse showing and that uh, there was very little partying and drugs and sex mentioned. And I realized this was for two reasons. One, he was in a study relationship. He dated um, a gentleman named Greg Hall who... Greg Hall, I hope you're doing great. Um, and I guarantee Greg knows where the bodies are buried. He was a little bit, little bit more monogamous, monogamous during the '90s. I'm not gonna say completely, um, but he was a little no, bit. No, because in the '80s he was also in, or I think it was the '80s. It was either the '80s or the '70s. He had a few long-term relationships that he was definitely not monogamous during. <laughs> oh no, he's definitely not monogamous. Monogamous. Oh gosh, I can't say that word. He's definitely not uh not cheating. He's definitely cheating the entire time and it actually is one of the reasons why him and Greg break up, but they did stay together for almost 10 years. Oh wow. He's also sober at this time. So, I believe it was 87 that he took a vow of sobriety and he was sober for I think 10 to 13 years before he started drinking again. 14 years. 14 years. Okay. So, it does make sense that in the 90s with a serious relationship and no longer drinking that he's the book mellows a lot. <laughs> which is I really appreciate it I could actually follow what's going on the guest interviews also start being totally less horrible there's a few horrible ones that are still you know joking about abusing horses but like there's a lot more mellowness to the book um, in the 90s and I actually want to point this out because I think it's really easy for people who met George in the 90s to be like oh he's not that bad you know like he's, he's a great guy because he was a little bit more in control at this time he falls off the rails later but like during the 90s he was a little bit more in control so at this time, he owns Hunterdon uh, Stable, which is in Pittstown, New Jersey. And he had a, he'd been getting his protege riders. Um, and he had one who he was really excited about, um, who was riding with him. But after three years of riding with George, this person decided he'd, he'd be better off on his own. Um, and this actually really upset George. He was not okay with this. I can only imagine what uh, might have actually been going on at that time, but you know, he just blames it on young people wanting to, to make money more than wanting to learn. So at this time, he ends up pro- approaching someone he knows, Chris Kapler, who he's known since about 1984, to be his like right-hand man at Hunterdon and come and start training horses for him. He needed a more permanent upper-level rider at his barn, someone he could take around and campaign, but also someone to help him teach and manage the horses and the barn. So just as a side note, him and Chris Kapler, who Chris is – the one who wrote the forward, the quote at the beginning of the episode. Uh, They met in 1984. Uh, George at the time was the designer uh, and the judge for the medal finals that year. And he spotted Chris as a nice young talent. And he says that he reminded him a lot of Conrad Homefield. He actually 
talks in a lot of different locations about Chris being a Conrad replacement. And after the show, he ended up, his mom, Chris's mom, ended up calling Contraden and asking if uh, Chris could come and be a student. And essentially the rest is history. It's always worth it's always worth noting which students George kind of mentions that he either scouted out at horse shows or might have scouted in clinics. Yes. Yeah, he definitely has a strategy for adding riders to his to his barn there's a pattern yeah a pattern of scouting that is he does I will say he does sometimes do it for girls too it's not just young boys but there's definitely a pattern of how he collects riders so anyways as we move forward through the 90s and team selections they start to change due to the Debbie Dolan lawsuit which George phrases that she won because or that USET won because they needed the win the judge felt sorry for USET and that's like actually not how that works at all and obviously not what they said in the court decision (laughs) but they changed the format for selecting team riders to being completely objective so the first year it was based on money won while you were competing and then future selections it was based solely off of how you placed at the trials. In 1997, after judging the West Coast Talent Search competition with his close friend and student, Ann Krasinski, George penned a really uncomfortable column for the Chronicle of the Horse titled, Values and Boys Are Hard to Find on Our Horse Show Scene. Ah. Which, given his, given his history, not the best title. Oh my god, that's awful. This article goes on to basically explain why women shouldn't be professional riders and like that it should only be for men. Oh my God. And I'm like, George, you're sitting next to Anne right now. Anne went to four Olympics. Anne is your student. Like this is what you were thinking. I'm going to share these quotes because these are truly horrible. And I did not even pull the worst of the quotes. But this is him writing for his Between the Rounds uh, article in Chronicle of the Horse. I see far too many riders, soft, physically and or mentally. Many are overweight, overfed, spoon-fed, pampered, coddled, babied, and nursed. Is that the kind of atmosphere in which parents want to indulge their sons? No. Parents do not want their sons growing up in a sissy sport. I would expect a father to want his son to learn real values, self-discipline, take it on the chin and pick yourself up work ethic, sportsmanship, get tough, bravery, etc. Most of these values are hard to find today on American horse show scene. So discussing the way it used to be in the 1950s, he goes on to say, The great bulk of professionals, as in Europe today, were men, and very often their apprentices and assistants were men. Thus, the continuation of generations of horse men. We are in danger of losing this all-important balance in the hunter-jumper works in North America. It was harder then, both physically and mentally, for the girls. Many, many girls ride in the junior division in Europe, but as they climb the ladder and the sport gets tougher, the girls fall by the wayside. No! As the sport, as they go up the ladder, he clearly turns a blind eye and wants someone else to be on the team and ignores them. Also, is he forgetting the fully female team? Yes! I think it was like, uh, it wasn't... Where they had a fully female team of like three of his top students. How are you going to sit there and tell me that they were less than the boys? Well, also he's saying he misses the way it used to be in the 1950s when women weren't allowed to leave the house. (laughs) Right? Women weren't like, the only jobs for women were secretaries. Like being a secretary. Like, 
thanks, George. I'm so glad that our like <laughs> getting to be a part of the workforce and getting more rights and being seen as equals has really upset you. He says keeping this balance in the hunters or whatever. That's not a balance you were just talking about, sir. That was an imbalance. You're annoyed that girls are getting to ride horses and getting to compete now. Yeah, because in the 50s, it was both physically and mentally harder for the girls. And because the sport has become so sissy, so soft, that's why the boys aren't riding because it's not a sissy girl sport. I want to punch this man so badly. And he wrote this again after him and Anne sat in a judge's booth together and judged a horse show. Sitting next to Anne, this is what he's thinking. What is wrong with you? I say this from the bottom of my heart. What an asshole. Yes. What an asshole. So one more quote I want to share from that Between the Rounds book as we kind of wrap up the 90s and move into the 2000s because I think it's important to kind of see where his mindset is. But he talks a lot about horse owners and that they're not sort of participating and providing the quality of horses he believes they should be anymore. So this article was written in 1996. Um, It's Between the Rounds, one of his columns. And here's just a quick quote that says, where are the philanthropic owners of old? Yes, there's some out there. Usually, though, they have selfish motives at heart. Rarely do they give for the sake of the sport. That's why the Open Hunter Divisions and the Grand Prix classes and the USAT are all limping behind a bit. The owners of old were people passionate for the sport of kinks. So he has an issue with the new wave of ownership that is coming onto the market this time. That's syndication, right? Or people who want to profit off of their horse and see it as an investment. He really doesn't like that, and he talks about it from time to time. And that's sort of important to understand what happens kind of next. In 1999, he also bought his house in Wellington, which I believe he still owns. That's where he currently resides. Um, And also, sadly, in 1999, while competing at the Lake Placid Horse Show in New York, one of the horses George and Chris had brought to the competition ended up falling ill at the show, ended up having to be put down a few days later. So to kick off the 2000s, I found another article that I want to share by the Tampa Bay Times. So this was uh, published on March 24th, 1999. The former rider, 61, continues to have major influence on the sport of as a coach and mentor, mentioned the name George Morse and the world of show jumping lessons. His lifelong passion for the sport and career as a teacher and coach of the U.S. Olympic teams have earned him a place of ventration in equestrian circles around the globe. Aspiring Olympians crowd his clinics. Young competitors avidly read his books and magazine columns on the correct style and technique of jumping, and world-class riders strive to achieve his rigid expectations. He has been a driving force in the development of what is known as the American style of riding, forward seat, strong leg, and light contact with the bit. And he has had a hand at training some of the country's greatest equestrian athletes, including Ann Krasinski, Leslie Howard, Chris Kapler, and Allison Firestone. So as 1999 rolled into 2000, all eyes went on the upcoming Sydney Olympic Games. At this time, George also was not being the co-chefty equip. Like he kind of is sometimes and he kind of isn't. He like jumps back and forth. Uh, but he did step down because he had two students, Allison Firestone and Nona Garrison, who were shortlisted for the Olympics. And he didn't want there to be any signs that uh, any unfairness or funny business was going to happen. So he stepped down and no funny business happened. Uh-huh. 
Sure. I'm just kidding. The funny business this time <laughs> uh, is all around Nona and her horse, Rhythmical. So in 2000, Nona was riding for the U.S. Olympic teams in Sydney, and she had a less than stellar performance at the Olympics. It was so poor, in fact, that her and Rhythmical actually became separated in the first round of competition. A fact that George leaves out of his book. <laughs> he totally, like, does it. He, in his book, he just says, like, Nona had a bad round, which is, it's a little bit more than a bad round. <laughs> so in, <laughs> this is an ESPN article that was published in September 24, 2000. And you guys, the reason I'm using a lot of outside sources is because at this time, it's a lot easier in the 90s and 2000s to counter George's stories and to provide some context that George leaves out of the book. Yeah. For Robin, it was a lot harder to find that kind of stuff for the 50s and 60s and 70s. So I have these alternative sources. I have the rest of the story. So I do want to share the rest of the story. So this is an ESPN article that was titled, uh, Horses Lose Footing on Big Stage. And this was from September 24th, 2000. Slippery footing and a touch of equine stage fright took their toll on U.S. show jumping squad here Monday. Rhythmical, ridden by Nona Garrison of Lebanon, New Jersey, fell on a turn during the qualifying round, eliminating her from the individual event. Horse and rider were unhurt and will be in the team event Thursday. I've done this sport for a long time, Garrison said. You can be a queen or you can be on the ground in a heartbeat. It hasn't stopped me before and it won't stop me here. Her teammates also knocked down a lot of rails. So did just about everyone else. So the footing at, I think, the Sydney Olympics was really bad. So Nona's horse was Rhythmical. So Rhythmical is a beautiful little 15-2 Russian bred chestnut. So he came from Russia. And yes, as the story goes, he absolutely was exchanged along with two other horses for 150 washing machines from the government stud farm. What? He was a cavalry horse. The Russian government owned him. And in exchange for 150 washing machines, uh, the person with the washing machines got three horses, one of them being Rhythmical. <laughs> Which is an insane story because you want to know how much George, George didn't buy this horse um one of those uh investors bought this horse for three hundred thousand dollars in the early 90s holy crap that's over half a million dollars in 2022 monies fast forward to the lead up to the olympics and nona is doing actually pretty well with rhythmical this is george's point of view um and it's so interesting how this like keeps happening to george um and i don't think he's understanding why it keeps happening to him but essentially before they shipped out to Australia for the Olympics, they were staying in California, the team was. They were going to be there for a few weeks in order to adjust to some heat and then get shipped to Australia. George started the couple weeks that they were there with Nona because uh, that was one of his students. So while they were in California, something happened between the two of them. And Nona decided that she wanted to distance herself from George uh, and that she like asked George to leave. She said that she didn't need him there. She wanted to go out on her own. Didn't need George to be present, even though this makes zero sense. Like this is George's telling of the story. I believe this happened. But for Nona to say a few weeks before the Olympics, please leave me alone. What the heck happened? Yeah, that's not just her being like, I don't need you. That means... There's a lot more happening behind the scenes that he is not sharing for. I mean, imagine the stress a rider is under leading up to the Olympics and then to ask their instructor or who they were relying on to leave or like, please leave me alone. That says they were going through a lot. Right. That instructor that got you here. 
right? You were nothing. And I don't mean that in like you were nothing before him, but you were on the team until he came into your life, right? Like he has pulled the strings. He has worked with you to get you And I'm sure he used that as leverage against her. Oh, I'm sure. Like I'm sure he describes it as basically there was another gentleman there that maybe she was starting to like have a crush on or something. And that gentleman convinced her that George was making her too nervous and she would be better on her own because, you know, women can't make their own decisions. No, of course not. And it's like, George, that's not what happened, right? For her, of course she's nervous leading up to the Olympics. Of course. I think going out on her own would be the most scary thing to do a few weeks before. <laughs> like, whatever. And essentially, George says, you know, when he leaves, that he left her with a system. So Rhythmical could be slightly spooky at Liverpool jumps, and he left her with a system for how to work him through and build his confidence in those last few weeks. Apparently, according to George, she didn't follow the plan. They went out into the field and started jumping a very scary, big water jump. And Rhythmical had a rotational fall at the Liverpool and ended up hurting himself fairly badly. The vets did okay him to fly to Australia. They said, give him a few weeks rest. We'll fly him to Australia. The thing is, you cannot rest a horse leading up to the Olympics. Okay, that conditioning. You don't have time to rest them and give them time off. So now the drama begins is, does Nona get to ride or does Todd get to ride? Who is going to ride? And remember... One of these is George's students, one of these is not. According to George, Frank, who was the sole chef at that time, calls him and wants some input. Who does he think should ride? George says, Nona should ride. Despite the fact that at this time, after a horrible fall, Rhythmical is not consistent in practice. He's having bad practices. He's not hitting his stride. Something is not right with oh this horse. Oh my God, this poor horse. Why would you ever ever say like give them the green light to go and compete at the olympics if they just had a really serious rotational fall requiring the horse to be on rest for weeks at a time i will give george this one no i will give him a little bit of leeway i absolutely do not think rhythmical should have gone but todd has no international experience or very little international experience and nona was first going into the trials and ended up second behind margie so nona has been really strong going into the Olympics. So I can see that that's a really tough decision. And he likely, and I will say rightfully so, believed Nona was the best rider. But unfortunately, she didn't have the right horse and ended up falling off rhythmical after he pulled six rails in her first class at the Olympics. They also did not do well. No one did well at the Olympics. And George blames it on the footing. The year 2000 was also had some other rough patches for George. So he was doing a lot of clinics at this time, doing a lot of traveling at this time. And there's a rumor that George killed a horse with a metal pole in 2000s. I do believe this happened, though I'm surprised I could not find any lawsuits around it because I would imagine you'd want to sue the barn, George, somebody for the death of this horse. I was searching forums is where I found this, but I found it referenced in a lot of different places. So again, maybe it's all speculation. Maybe it never happened. I think it happened, guys. I think it happened. I think it happened too, because I saw a lot of references of like, where people started talking about it, and they're like, well, just wait for the articles to come out and see what they say about it. But I can never find any of the articles actually talking about it. But I think it did happen. Yeah. I really think this happened. I think it did happen. So, and again, I saw this confirmed in multiple different sources over different years, most of them being forums. 
So apparently while teaching a clinic in Oregon, one of the horses in the clinic passed away. What had happened was George had set up a course that included a skinny fence, which was about six feet wide, that was constructed with metal poles. So he was using metal poles in that instance because this is, and we'll come back to this, this is important, this is a method of polling a horse. So instead of, or wrapping, he calls it polling, at one point says he found a better method for polling, and I believe this is what it is. When the horse hits a metal pole, and they're skinny metal poles, it hurts a lot more than hitting a big wooden yes. one. Okay, So unfortunately, they had decided to put this on a skinny fence, uh, which made the pole a little bit too short. I don't know exactly what happened, if the horse crashed into the fence, or if he clipped it, or what happened, but the pole ended up stabbing the horse through the chest and killing it in the clinic. George decided to continue to use that jump for the rest of the clinic. He did not take it out of the course. He continued to use it for the rest of the clinic. Oh, my God. It was never about the horse. No. If at this point you are not outraged by George's horse care, uh, how how much concern he has for horses that are in his care, prepare to be even more outraged. No. Remember that horse I mentioned that died in 1999 at the Lake Placid Horse Show? Yeah. In 2003, George and Chris were sued by the horse's owners due to their negligent behavior. And the courts found they were absolutely negligent. How was he injured? He was not injured. He fell sick. Oh. So in 2003, um, George and his partner, Chris Kapler, along with two other vets, were sued for $75,000 by a Pennsylvania couple, the Tells. Uh, So this $75,000 was compensation and punitive damage um, for a horse that had died while in George's care at Hunterdon. Rewinding back to 1998, uh, October 1998, Tells, or the plaintiffs in this story, sent their horse Sabre to Hunterdon to be trained, ridden, and sold by George and Chris. So the goal was to campaign the horse in the Grand Prix circuit and either find investors for syndication or just sell the horse for a lot of money. The other thing to note about Sabre was that he had breeding duties. So Sabre was um, a stallion and the Owners were very adamant that his breeding schedule took precedence over the show schedule. So if he was at a horse show and there was a mare that needed to be um, serviced, they had to immediately load him up in the trailer and take him to the nearest vet clinic to be collected. If this is the conversation George was having with those owners before taking the horse, remember his mindset in the 1996 was that owners were selfish. He would not have liked this owner at all because they were more interested in the money from Sabre than they were in just having a good horse. So apparently after Sabre arrived in October, Morris and Kapler realized that he was going to need a bit more training and schooling like prior to showing. Like he wasn't quite ready. They didn't start taking him out to shows until like January. So during this time, the tells were billed but stated that the invoices were hard to read and it was hard to understand the prices and they seemed to be exorbitant. Like they couldn't understand why the prices were so expensive. It sounds like the tells called and talked with Morris on the phone as well as Chris and any other people that were at the farm to try to discuss this. And as they claim, and this is all from court documents, by the way, like this is the court case I'm reading. It was during like these calls that Morris and Kapler became antagonistic and verbally abusive with the owners. But they decided to keep the horse with Morris for a little bit longer because Morris is the best. At the same time, um, in April, Morris contacted Tells to tell them that Sabre wasn't doing well after a horse show and that he had to go to the vet clinic for dehydration. After that incident in April, he went back to Hunterdon and he was able to go back into training. 
Morris and Kapler wanted to enter him in the upcoming Lake Placid horse show that was at the end of the June end of June and apparently they waited like really late to contact the owners because by the time the owners called to give permission for him to go the horse was like already on the trailer and had already left for the horse show which was um he left June 28th and the show like started I think that next day. So on June 29th, it was observed that Sabre was not doing well and a local vet who was near the Lake Placid showgrounds was contacted. So at 1 p.m. on the 29th, they drew blood from Sabre. They listened to his lungs, took his temperature, uh, and he had a temperature of 101.4 and his lungs were sounding like there was fluid in them. The protocol that the vet started was that he started giving him some uh, antibiotics. So he gave him Naxil, which I looked up, and it's a broad-spectrum antibiotic that is often used to treat respiratory infections. So that makes sense. He thinks there's uh, a respiratory issue going on. Reading the package, I'm a little confused because it does seem like you're not supposed to give it more than once every 24 hours. And as we'll see, the horse starts to get it repeatedly throughout the day, even though it's a once every 24 hours for a max of 10 days. And it also, in the court, says that it was given um, IV, but it should have been given uh, IM, so into the muscle versus into the vein. And then he was also started on another antibiotic, Gentosin, which when I looked that up, it's typically used for treating infections in mares. But again, he's probably just trying to get antibiotics in this horse, anything to kill whatever's in there. So I think the next morning, so 30th, he, the same vet, Steele, came back and administered Butte and gave him more antibiotics. And then that afternoon, he gave him more antibiotics. So the blood work and temp were both came back normal. Like he had normal temperature at this time and his blood work was normal but they wanted to continue that uh Naxil uh protocol for another 48 hours because like that's what you're supposed to do you're supposed to continue the antibiotics until 48 hours after symptoms stop so again it makes sense that they would have given him more antibiotics even though everything seemed normal at that time another day goes july 1st and the horse received both am and pm antibiotic shots and his lungs were scoped but nothing was found but it did sound like his lung noises were becoming worse so they scoped they didn't see anything but he was sounding worse july 2nd the fever returned he again received antibiotics and butte and his lungs were ultrasounded and they did a tracheal wash again nothing was found Blood work was taken again at this time, and it was uh, supposed to be shipped, but they did the shipping wrong instead of like having it be next day delivery or overnight. It didn't arrive for like a couple of days to the lab, which was in Kentucky, and they're in, I think, New York. And so the blood was bad, and they weren't able to sample it. He was also treated that day for thrombosis because his veins had blown due to all the IV injections he was getting. Oh, this poor horse. Did they show this horse at that horse show or did they thankfully leave him? They No, they didn't even get, nope, they didn't even get there. But this time, by the morning of July 3rd, the horse is still at the horse show. They've not taken him anywhere. He is still at the show. He, at this time, he has a racing pulse. He's had projectile diarrhea. He hasn't eaten. He's dehydrated. They're being given a bunch of meds trying to help stabilize him. But like, nothing's working. And here's where the real problem lies. Nobody has told his owners at this point. It is July 3rd. He started showing signs of not being okay the 29th, four days ago. Nobody has told the tells. Morris finally decides on July 3rd that he's going to call his barn manager back at Hunterdon. And he calls her and he tells the barn manager to call the tells barn manager. Don't even call them directly. So he says, you barn manager, call their barn manager and tell them that their horse is uh, 
was doing fine until today. He seems a little off. Nothing major, just a little off. It's not even hard to do to call them directly. First off, why call your bar manager who is not there, who does not know all the ins and outs of what is going on? Secondly, why would you not just call and tell them their horse is sick? If you didn't have anything to do with it, I don't see the issue of you calling to say, hey, your horse isn't doing well. I'm sure they would love to know. And I'm sure they would love him to get to a hospital or get proper treatment. I don't, I don't know why he didn't do anything. July 4th, the horse is still at the horse show. He's still there. And they decide on July 4th, okay, it might be time to take him to the hospital. He might not be doing well at this point. So they decide they're going to take him to Mid-Atlantic Equine, um, which is a vet clinic. George tells his bar manager to tell the tells bar manager to tell the tells that uh, it turns out Lake Placid is too rural to get proper medical care. So because the horse isn't doing great, I mean, he's doing fine. He's doing fine. But like he's starting to show signs of not doing great. We're going to take him to this vet clinic a few hours away. Then a few hours later, George calls and says, actually, never mind. We're going to take him to a different vet clinic, the New England Equine Vet Clinic, because it's closer, and Dr. Bradley is going to work on him. Oh, my God. This poor horse must be in so much pain and just this poor pony. After a few hours, this is later in the afternoon. I think it's like 4 o'clock or something, maybe in the afternoon. Uh, the Tells, Saber's owner, just, they call the clinic directly, and they ask, um, and Dr. Cook is the doctor, Dr. Bradley does not exist. The tells call and speak to Dr. Cook. And they're like, hey, Saber, our horse, he's on the way. How's he doing? Like, can you tell us about him? And Dr. Cook goes, who's Saber? I I don't know what you're talking about. Who's Saber? Later that evening, around 7 p.m., Dr. Cook calls the tells back. And he's like, so Saber's here. Um, and he's not doing good. It looks like he's got about 24 hours to live. Like he's got, likely has potomac. Potomac fever? Oh my god, that's the second horse George has had that that gets that, by the way. Wow. So he would have known what was going on. The Jones boy got that too. Yeah, well, so this horse likely had that or something similar. Apparently, George's barn manager calls the tells to be like, Dr. Bradley found an abscess in his lung and is going to take him off the meds as it's giving him an upset tummy. There is no Dr. Bradley. Dr. Bradley does not exist. Oh, my God. (laughs) And if he does, he's not involved with Saber's care. The next day, unfortunately, July, I think, 5th it was at that time, they do decide to euthanize Saber. And don't panic, folks. They did remove his scrotum and freeze any leftover sperm. I was not even remotely thinking of that. Wow. This poor horse. Oh, my God. This poor horse. No one cared about him. Robin, it gets worse. No. The horse is already euthanized at this point. It's okay. It doesn't get worse for the horse. It gets worse for George. That was July 5th the horse died. The next day, the next day, George's barn manager calls the tells to tell them Saber was doing really well in recovery. What? The owners have to tell her he'd been euthanized the night before. And I am so curious how that phone conversation went. Who does that? Yeah, so the the courts found that uh, the vets were not liable and not guilty of the death, but that George and Chris's actions directly led to the death of Saber. Oh my god. But like, yes, it's it's one horse. George never once made a good decision throughout that entire process. Who told the barn manager to call the next day? What does that mean that George just dropped the horse off and drove away and was like, we'll just hope everything works out? The it was a different time argument no longer works now that we're in the 2000s. So 
in the book, the only like maybe light reference to this is that George does mention that owning Hunterdon is starting to stress him out a little bit. But that's it. Like he obviously he's not going to talk about a horse dying in its care. Well, it just it doesn't um, <laughs> it doesn't go to support the facade of him being a great horseman who only cares for the horse, because this is a situation where if you truly care for the horse, this never would have happened. People could say, well, you weren't there. You don't know what he did. A court found him negligent. Right. A court found him and Chris 100 percent responsible for what happened to the horse. Let's not take, like, the court had enough evidence, right? The court would have heard the entire story, would have heard both sides in detail. They found them guilty. Wow, I am floored by that. That was 2003, and as we roll into 2004, it's another Olympic season. And, of course, the Olympic team is chosen without any difficulties. Uh, No horse, not even a horse died due to George's actions or physical uh, or his psychic abilities. Just kidding. That's not what happened. Just kidding. Oh, I was going to give a round of applause. No, no, the, no. So that year, the Olympics were held in Athens, Greece. Uh, and it was the first year that subjective choices were used since Debbie Dolan's lawsuit. So this is the first time. Um, and George, again, is, I think, acting kind of as like co-chef or maybe he's not. It's really hard to tell. I'm pretty sure he's still a selector. What they decided to do was that they would allow one rider a buy. Uh, that year. So that meant he didn't have to go to the selection trials. He could just walk onto the team. There was one gentleman that like really stuck out to George that year that he was having so much success with his horse, Royal Caliber. That was Chris Caliber. He got a bye, didn't have to go to the selection trials. He ended up only doing a couple shows and getting getting to be on the team automatically. George argues that like this wasn't a big deal because everyone knew how successful Chris had been at that point. So they were cool with it. Um, other riders on the team included BZ Madden, Peter Wilde, and McLean Ward. Those riders all had to go through six rounds of selection trials to earn third place on the team and Chris got to skip that whole thing because he got the walk-on rider and it kind of just starts from here to feel a little bit of deja vu back to the whole Nona and rhythmical thing before the Olympics the team headed to Europe so they wanted to go and do some of the shows in in Europe and kind of get adjusted and ready for the Olympics George didn't go to Europe that year. I think he was focusing on other students. That's why he didn't go. Uh, So Chris and Royal are over in Germany. They're competing. And Chris like calls George and says that when he was riding Roy, that's what they call Royal, that he had slipped and fallen during one of the competitions. It was a rollback turn, a tight turn and a jump off. And he ended up tweaking something in a hind leg. And the team vets looked at the horse and they were like, zoinks like this is serious he we might we should probably ship him home like I don't think he's going to go on to the Olympics like this is a serious injury George back in the United States all clairvoyant is like no it's probably nothing and literally says over my dead body is that horse coming home so his quote is when Chris told me they were considering bringing him back to the states I told him it would only be over my dead body. I made it crystal clear that Royal Caliber, the best horse in the country, mind you, was not getting on an airplane. One must always get a second opinion before a decision that monumental. Peter, who's the second vet, went to see him and in his opinion was that he just tweaked something and needed a week or two of light work and was okay to go to the show in Aiken. George in the United States goes, oh, it's nothing, it's nothing. Get this other vet to come and look at him and he'll he'll confirm that it's nothing. So some pretty good psychic powers he's got there. Super psychic. And out of curiosity, 
just on a whim, I decided to Google the vet he had come. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. (laughs) Oh, yes. But he actually was the German team vet in the 90s. So it's weird to me that you would not trust your own vets, but you would trust another team's vet. And immediately when I hear this story about like Peter coming and being like, oh, your horse is fine. It's not a big deal. I immediately kind of think back to that racetrack episode and think about drugs, right? Yeah. And from what I can tell about Peter, he is no longer the team vet for Germany, but he is very involved with the FBI. And he actually represents a lot of riders who get doping card, like or get a yellow card or get carded for doping their horses. And he represents the riders and testifies on them, testifies on the behalf of the rider because he has a lot of knowledge about different drugs. And so he acts as their expert witness. And this includes uh, testifying for multiple riders from the 2004 Olympics that were banned for using prohibited substances, including Ludger Bierbaum, who ended up losing his medal for using a prohibited um, substance at Athens. Also, we know from the last episode that George is nowhere near opposed to drugging his horses. And so I imagine because Peter is the drug expert, the European drug expert who argues on behalf of all accused riders, he's in multiple FEI cases, multiple tribunal reports, probably understood what to give Chris's horse. Because bada boom, bada bang, Chris's horse is fine and he goes on to the Olympics. Yeah, it doesn't seem fine, but okay. So that year at Athens, the curse of bad footing was back. Athens used turf, which I'm going to go on a hard and say, yeah, like that's probably not a very good footing to be doing show jumping on because it's so slick. So the U.S. show jumping team actually ended up in first after Germany got bumped out due to... Uh, illegal substances and a similar situation happened in the individual medals so Chris and uh, a gentleman by the name of Rodrigo Pessoa ended up having to do a jump off for the bronze medal and so Chris has gone through jumped all week long on his horse royal caliber it's the last part and Chris is cruising around the, the jump off course, right? So he's had to come back. He's already done all his rounds. He's tied for third place and he has to come back and do this jump off. He's going around the jump off. Two fences from home, he stops Royal dead in his tracks. Two fences left on course. Chris pulls Royal to a halt. A horsey ambulance races into the arena and removes Royal from the arena. What had happened was Royal bowed a tendon during that final jump off. Oh, poor guy. Poor pony. And of course, this is blamed on the footing. And I think a lot of other horses may have had issues with the footing. Yes, I absolutely believe the footing to be a contributing factor. We also know the horse did not come in sound. The horse already was injured leading up to it. So I can imagine he was probably having to do some compensation or was just overusing himself. What they end up doing is unfortunately Royal is not able to go home right away because he has to be stabilized so that he can stand because right, a plane rides a log tiresome trip for a horse so he ends up having to be stabilized and he ends up going to Holland and while he's in Holland he unfortunately colics 
they get him recovered they get him to a better get him out in a pasture and he colics again and unfortunately has to be put down royal unfortunately never got to come home um in 2008 we roll into the olympics that were held in beijing nothing super remarkable happened this year except some nerve-wracking time was spent on an airplane praying that the pilots would be able to land safely during a typhoon and according to george the pilots actually asked him to decide what airport to land at and he was left with everybody's life in his hands um, because the pilots wanted his opinion on where to land that's actually not how that works no nope that's also not how that works he also (laughs) proudly brags that um george and the u.s grooms and team staff really took it upon themselves to show um to be like to help the stewards the show stewards police the olympics because they wanted to make sure nobody was up to no good like polling he actually kind of goes on to say that he saved the life of several olympic horses because he reported them for riding after hours because he knew they were going on to pull their horses illegally behind some trees bullshit he used this as an excuse to report riders he saw as competition oh yes he did as chef he took it upon himself to scream and shout whenever he didn't get his way because he believes that's how you show the uh europeans how tough america is to throw full-on Karen meltdowns. What an atrocious little man. So in a brilliant bit of foreshadowing in 2009, George ended up meeting a celebrity at one of the Wellington Jumper shows. And like such a big deal that he had to brag about it in his book, about this particular gentleman and his wife who are now super divorced. They actually end up a year later inviting him to a party at their house on Long Island. That party, he met a bunch of New York celebrities such as Kelly Ripa, Bruce Springsteen, Howard Stern, Robert Duvall, Angelico Houston, and a bunch of execs from NBC and Warner Brothers. So who do you think he met? Uh, Jacqueline Mars? No, I don't know. No. I just wanted to throw her name out there because he never talks about her, but he name drops everybody else. I just said the answer, but you were ranting. And yes, it is super weird that Jacqueline Mars makes zero appearances in this book as they were the on this like board at USCF at the exact same time. They ran in the exact same circles. So it's definitely on purpose that she's not in this book. It's also probably definitely on purpose that Denny Emerson is also not in this book. Oh, yeah. Okay, sorry. So who is the name? Matt Lauer. Whoa. Yes. And uh, Matt Lauer was fired in 2017 from NBC amid sexual assault claims against his staff. He uh, claims that's a night he'll never forget. So the 2010s, we had the World Equestrian Game in Kentucky. It wasn't super eventful. And in 2012, we had the Olympics. So leading up to 2012, just before the 2012 Olympics, George actually was treated for an aggressive form of prostate cancer. He ended up having a surgery to remove it and um, just barely made it to the London Olympics. At this point, you know, he isn't having a stellar career. The 2012 Olympics didn't go great. He just had prostate cancer. And the first allegation from victim number one is reported against him. So victim number one originally came forward in 2012 
And so I think it's really not a super shock to see that George stepped down as chef in 2013. He claims that he did this because he really wanted to get back to teaching and sort of building students up from the bottom. He was in a position where when he wasn't chef, he would kind of come back and he would help a lot of upper level writers, but he'd really just end up like sitting around in the corner and not really getting to participate the way he wanted to. So I do understand how this could be really frustrating to him, topped with, you know, the cancer and someone maybe making an allegation against him, which he totally would have known about. I don't think it was any would have been a secret. It's easy to see why he stepped down a chef at this time. In 2015, there was a George action figure that was released by the Chronicle of the Horse. It cost about $100, and it would bark rude remarks at you when you pulled the string or whatever. So there was a George Morris action figure that was uh, sold as a way to raise money for it, uh, for like a, some organization. Sorry, it was like a fundraiser thing. And that brings us back to August 5th, 2019. And I apologize because we've got to rewind real quick so that you can understand why August 5th, 2019 is a date that actually makes sense. So in 2014, after a comedian mentioned his sexual misconduct in a stand-up performance, more women actually came forward to publicly state that Bill Cosby had done to them. So 2014 is when this whole sort of movement of reporting sexual abusers in the workplace started with the Bill Cosby incident. In 2015, the USA Gymnastics began taking action against Larry Nassar for sexual abuse of after a private investigation of after decades found complaints against him. What the U.S. gymnastics team went through testifying, which was very public in November 2016, that led to many more people coming forward about allegations. So it was really Larry Nasser, and that whole scandal was the domino that made so many more fall. In January 2019, one of George's longtime friends and students came forward to publicly tell her story of abuse at the hands of her very famous riding instructor. Anne Krasinski, along with two other former students of the now deceased Jimmy Williams, shared their story publicly. Her testimony also led to Jimmy Williams being banned from USCF posthumously, which a lot of people assumed would also happen to George. So the fact that victims came forward while he was still alive wasn't quite what people had expected. So the following is a clip from the Chronicle of the Horse article titled titled Overall Horseman of the Year, Diane Langer and Ann Krasinski. For Diane Langer, the tipping point came in January of 2018. For months, titans of entertainment and business world had been tumbling thanks to allegations of sexual misconduct and the Catholic Church was in the hot seat for how it handled allegations of abuse. All of this reignited the complicated feelings surrounding Langer's own abuse at the hands of her childhood riding instructor. But when she saw a teenage gymnast testifying during the sentence of USA gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser, she made the decision to tell her own story. I remember watching them on TV during the trial. I broke down crying and I said to my husband, I've got to do this, she recalled. He said, I'm right there with you all the way. If the young gymnast could stand there and graphically explain what happened to them, I'm an adult woman. I could stand up and take it also. Some of the same factors pushed Ann Krasinski to share her story of sexual assault at the hands of legendary horseman Jimmy Williams. At USCF Show Jumping Talent Search Finals East in New Jersey, I had a mother come up to me after most people were gone to say, thank you for speaking up, recalled Krasinski. Every now and then at a horse show, a mother or woman or younger girls will thank me and some will share their stories. So I think it's just important that we 
recognize why these people come forward when they do to tell their stories of abuse and that it's it's not a gotcha moment it's not to become famous it's to protect others yeah most of the time they're not doing it for themselves so much as they do it because they're concerned that the whoever abused them is going to go on and do that to others well i think they've come to terms with it like i think that's a big thing and i especially i think when we're talking about male victims it can be really hard to come to terms with the fact that you were a victim you were taken advantage of uh something bad and terrible happened to you and i think it sometimes is a lot harder for for men to recognize that and come forward with that so august 6 2020 Several lawsuits were filed against George by two of his alleged victims. Uh, Those suits were filed in New York, and they are using uh, some new enacted laws that had been passed in 2019 in order to allow crimes that had occurred against minors to not be affected by a statute of limitations. So because the crimes or the allegations happened, the abuse happened well, so both victims were under the age of 18. They were able to use this new 2019 uh, law that had been passed in the state of New York. So in March 2020, Katie Prudent, uh, Katie Mohan Prudent, who is one of George's all-stars from the 80s, uh, who was on the team with Ann Krasinski, made a public statement. She is definitely, she's also, I think, at one point referred to herself as one of uh, George's angels, um, like Charlie's angels, George's angels during the 80s. Yes, they referred to um, Melanie Smith, Kathy Moore, who was Jimmy Williams' right-hand woman before she came over to George's barn, and Katie Prudent. Yes. Uh, and that was because they couldn't show under the name Hunter did. They had to find a new barn, to sh- a new name to show under because George was banned. So in March 2020, Katie wrote a public letter to the editor of the Horse of Delaware Valley website, which was a very obscure website. It's a pretty long letter about, you know, how much the world is losing the horse community is losing so much without george but i do want to read a part of her statement because i think it's important to understand like this is what george's supporters are saying and sort of how she phrases and talks about the victims before we kind of dive into the victims what has happened in america over the last few years makes me very very sad and also very angry i want to ask some questions first What has safe sport done to make our sport safer? Is our sport safer because Jimmy Williams' name was taken off the Hall of Fame after he'd been dead for more than 20 years? Is our sport safer because Rob Gage killed himself? Is our sport safer because George Morris is banned? Do his accusers feel better about themselves now? Next, I'd like to talk about George Morris's two accusers. I was at Hunterdon, George's barn in Pittstown, New Jersey, when they were there. I've known them both for more than 40 years. The first accuser was always strange. He even went by another name during the Hunterdon days. I remember very well seeing him out at night, especially at horse shows. He was very druggy. Years later, he was arrested for and convicted of having child pornography on his computer. He is now and forever a registered sex offender in the state of Florida. This man was banned from our sport by Safe Sport, but guess what? The day after he testified against George, Safe Sport reinstated him. He is now allowed to teach children at horse shows and at private farms. Does that sound safe to you? Full disclaimer, not how that happened at all. He is absolutely banned by Safe Sport. He wasn't banned by Safe Sport previously because they didn't know who he was. He wasn't a big enough deal. I don't think he was even a riding instructor. I don't know. Once he came forward with these crimes, he was absolutely banned because he also is a sex offender so chill out katie also wait real quick i just want to throw in there 
just because someone commits heinous crimes and also has victimized children does not mean they were not victimized as a child. Like the the two, they're not exclusive. They can happen at the same time. Absolutely. Like two things can be true at the same time. Victim number one can be a shit person. He can also be a victim. Like, two things can be true at the same time. Yes. The second accuser was a tall, strong young man. I remember that during our Hunterdon days, he was very friendly with a couple of other young men at the barn. This individual's story was that during a clinic George was giving, he was a demonstrator. During the night, George allegedly came into his room, held him down, and raped him all night long. He said he cried out for help. No one came to save him. Again, guess what? A good friend of mine was also a demonstrator at that clinic. He had breakfast every day with the accuser and never heard, saw, or sensed anything unusual. Like, it's the victim's responsibility to make everyone know that they've been abused or something traumatic just happened? Like, what did you want him to do, Katie? Like, what should he have done when he is stuck miles from his home, away from his family, hanging out with you? Like, what did you think he was supposed to do? Also, he has just endured something so traumatic. There's no way. What was he going to do? Spit it out over eating his eggs at breakfast? Hell no. That's not how that works. That's not how that goes. I also have his story of this, of what happened that I'll share in just a second when I'm done reading her statement. Like, God, her statement is disgusting. Robin, it gets so much worse. So much worse. No. In addition, if you've ever done a clinic with George, then you know he doesn't even like to have dinner with the organizer. He goes back to his room and his notes and his books in order to be able to give every day and every student 150% of his energy. Personally, I don't believe George's accusers. My third question is this. Who is behind these accusers? Who pushed them to tell their tales? Is there a person or a family who blames George for their own failures in life, thinking it was George's fault that they didn't become as great as they thought they should be? Is there a high-up authority somewhere who thought it would be good for our sport to take down a high-profile figure? So she believes it to be a conspiracy theory that some disgruntled student puts these men up to making these claims. God, how dismissive and just disrespectful. And how ignorant. How ignorant? But like, what? Are you crazy? That there's a conspiracy against George to take him down because some student was upset they got yelled at? Is that really what you think happened? Is that like how you think the world works? That like, what? Yeah, wow. That is shocking. Also, I just want to say, she is not the only um, top rider that came out saying just disgusting and awful things about the victims and shaming the victims. Eric Lamaze is one that came out and writing horrible things. So did Robert Dover. Robert Dover said just as bad of stuff. That he goes, it's the 70s. Robert Dover actually acknowledges what happened and acknowledges one of the victims, but goes, oh, it's just a different time. Ah, I just, I can't believe what these people were saying and like uh not only does katie prudent say like 24 hours the fact that the one victim doesn't come out and tell someone right away makes it like it didn't happen but there's also the people that are like oh 50 years is too late you can't say it now so like never once did anyone want to listen to them or believe them or do anything about it 
if this, these are, right, these are people closest to George. These are the people who absolutely knew what was happening and this is their response. So of course, why would a victim want to come forward when they know this is the response they're going to get? Yeah. So it concludes, her little article, her little statement concludes, there's something very fishy and very dishonest in all of this. Who is behind it? Furthermore, Safe Sport acted illegally when they banned George Morris in America. A person is innocent until proven all caps guilty not only was george morris not proven guilty his accusers are not even believable george morris should be unbanned and immediately reinstated she i also believe is responsible for publicly outing one of the victims victim number two who is referred to in all uh court documents as like ag1 doe she clearly knows who it is she clearly knows the story because she was able to say that before she gave the story before he submitted his lawsuit which had the story right so she's not referring to the lawsuit because his lawsuit didn't come out until august she says her statement came out in march so she knows the story she knows who it is so like that's the other thing like how are you so certain you know who it is obviously he was someone told george who these people were or he found out somehow during their testimony to safe sport and to uscf victim number two is actually interviewed by new york times people who do know who he is he's not stated his name is not stated but basically, he goes on to say in a New York Times article that he felt re-victimized after coming forward. People would look away from him. They wouldn't make eye contact with him. And they personally blame him for being responsible for the downfall of their icon. People would like come up to him at horse shows afterwards because he's still an instructor and like yell at him. And his response is that if people would just pause for a moment and think how they would want this handled if they had been a victim, if it was a sibling of theirs that had been abused or a child of theirs that had been abused, the man continued, I think they would have a very different perspective. So just to clarify, safe sport is not the law of the land. Safe sport is a nonprofit organization that it was established in 2017 to protect basically young athletes. And it is essentially Georgia was accused in 2019 of a workplace violation. Now in 2020, with the lawsuits, he is being accused of a crime. So when those safe sport allegations came out, it wasn't an innocent until proven guilty situation. He'd already been proven guilty. He'd already been proven in violation of a workplace rule, essentially. It's the same thing. Can't wear flip-flops into, into the, you know, the job site. You could get fired for that. That's dramatically different <laughs> because one of these is a technically a crime. Like that is what he got fired from and banned from USCF for not following the regulations. And according to Dan Hill, the spokesperson for Safe Sport, the center does not have a statute of limitations because they disagree with those who seek to invalidate abuse that occurred many years ago. The change um, to change the culture of sports, individuals must be held accountable for their behavior regardless of how long ago it occurred. So that is Safe Sport's opinion. And I agree with that. Absolutely. Let's just talk briefly about who George's um, victims are because, you know, Katie went there, so we'll kind of follow up with some of the information. So the first victim or the first person who came forward originally did come forward in 2012. That person um, this time is now, I think, like 63. Like, these are grown people, grown men. Um, and he came forward because his brother, like, urged him to. And he reported those concerns to the Federation, to the United States Equestrian Federation. Um, and he explained, like, I think what had gone on. However, after that occurred, uh, he 
basically like recounted. He said that he was, you know, battling a drug addiction at that time. And he like recounted his statements. He retracted, said that like that just didn't happen or whatever. I think it's interesting that someone would have retracted. Like, I don't know why he would have done that. I think there's plenty of reasons that are legit for someone to retract a statement. I read that he said he um, recanted it because at the time he had relapsed um, in the drugs that he was taking and the paranoia from the drugs had him so fearful of what George would do and what, what would happen to him after these allegations became more public and people were aware that he accused George. And that's why he went and recanted it. But once he became clean and sober again is when he reported it to Safe Sport a few years later. And that I do like I think that makes sense. The New York Times article I found, it just says that like he suddenly recanted because he said he was like high on drugs at the time. And that article didn't like elaborate a guess on how he was exactly feeling about those uh the impact of those drugs but then yes once he got sober once he was no longer uh using drugs he was able to come back forward but just because he has that history does not make what happened to him as a kid invalid it does not diminish what george did to him no and i think you know lots of people who are abused and have something very traumatic happen to them absolutely go on to have drug problems right and to do other horrible things so while that what george did to him does not justify anything that he did after because plenty of people are abused and don't go on to do horrible things agreed and yes he did in 2007 plead guilty to having child pornography on his computer uh yes he had a drug habit so like yes he has questionable things, but to say that he was always druggy and he was weird as a 17-year-old and went under a different name, like, who cares? Like, I, obviously, George was using a lot of drugs at the same time, too. So, like, there was acid in his mashed potatoes. Like, let's be for real. <laughs> Bye, Michael Phelps, who later is his PR team, who was also a student of Jimmy Williams. Yes. Victim number two is AGI one Doe, and that is how the courts have decided to refer to him, and he also is... um. The courts have ruled that he can absolutely use that pseudonym. He does not have to say his real name, though obviously George knows who he is. And based on this, the events that he tells, George absolutely knows who he is. So I am going to tell his story now because I do think it's an important story and it does have some rougher parts. So this is from his summons that was submitted to the courts in August 5th, 2020, that is basically laying out what the accusations against George are. So at the time, uh, the plaintiff was 16 years old when he began riding a training at Hunter Den Farms um, and working for Morris. And he was basically put on the fast track to becoming one of the best riders in the junior rankings, as well as getting ready for national championships and being on the U.S. team. Like, that was what this rider's goal was. Spring of 1978, like, that's when he became, when he was first abused by George. So George ended up attending two shows, and that's where he spotted this rider, I think at age 14 or 15. Uh, and he said that the rider was a, a good rider. He liked what the, the boy could do and wanted him to come and, and train with him. He was super excited, obviously, to have this famous rider uh, who was looking at him in, you know, such it was an honor, right? Like an honor to have someone so, so well to do in the sport to. To, to recognize him um, as a good rider and an up-and-comer. So he, like, didn't see that as 
weird. So in April 1978, Morris invited the victim, the plaintiff, to come to a clinic that was ta- at Topping, uh, in Topping Writing Center in New York. So this is often like George would invite writers that he recognized to be good, but maybe couldn't afford a clinic or something like that to come and be demonstrator writers and to, to tag along. Uh, Topping arranged for the victim, as well as another writing student who was a young female, to, to stay with them in a nearby motel for um, a couple nights. So the writer, the victim, participated in the first full day of the clinic. Uh, there were roughly about 50 auditors in attendance at that clinic. Um, and then he went back to his hotel that evening to, to st- stay there. After dinner, so in the evening, the plaintiff heard a knock on his door. And when he opened the door, it was Morris standing there. Without conversation, Morris pushed the plaintiff onto the bed and pressed his body against the plaintiff to restrain him, pinning him down by his wrists. I'll give you a 15-second jump ahead if you need to. He forcibly raped the plaintiff through uh, anal penetration. The plaintiff attempted to fight Morris off, screamed in pain, and repeatedly yelled. Plaintiff attempted to fight Morris off and yelled, no, stop, it hurts, and Morris refused to stop. Plaintiff said he felt powerless to stop Morris's advances. Once Morris finished his assault, he dressed and left the motel room without any further conversation. Plaintiff, shaken and in pain, stood in the motel room shower for what he remembers felt like hours, attempting to wash away the horror that had just inflicted upon him. The next day, plaintiff returned to the clinic at Topping. He did not mention the assault to Morris, and Morris did not mention the assault to plaintiff. Plaintiff uh, had made previous arrangements to leave the clinic early to attend a different event in Syracuse. As the plaintiff was leaving the clinic, or leaving the clinic, the students in attendance began to applaud. Morris interrupted the applause, telling the students that plaintiff did not deserve adulation, but was lucky, lucky to be able to participate. Plaintiff left the event without any further discussion with Morris. Jeez. Unfortunately, like this event was something that, that he was never really able to move on from. He never had a romantic relationship in his entire adult life. He basically, it says he buried himself in his work and he just like refused to to kind of accept what had happened. Uh, and at the same time, Morris is becoming more and more famous and getting more and more like adulations and is training more and more young boys. Uh, slowly as these allegations against Morris became um, more prevalent and the rumors were becoming more heavy, like more and more people were talking about this, he began to like feel more and more stressed about what had happened and not coming forward. So it wasn't until like 2018 when he knew victim number one had came forward that victim number two decided that like he, he could also come forward. And that's when he ended up going forward to USCF and the Safe Sports basically started those proceedings. He also let them know that like there was other victims and was able to give other like males, minors that were minors at the time in other years. What's interesting is the years that Morris initially stated he was being accused for bad behavior in was 68 to 72. This victim, victim number two story, was 78. Uh, and then he reports another story about a victim from 73. So I'm not sure why Morris was so set on 68 to 72 being the years these accusations occurred, unless Morris is referring to somebody else. Yeah, it, he might have been referring to the first victim, the one that is 
publicly known his name is out there yeah so there is a third victim um but that third victim is deceased as i mentioned um but his father has made statements to the new york times um and other publications saying that his son was a protege of uh george's which is in reference to sort of how george groomed these young men that rode for him and how he would treat them that he would lavish upon them like the best horses he would give them the extra lessons and such. And that that person, victim number three, is known as a victim. His family, I think, recognized what was happening. But his friends, he, he was bragging. He thought, how lucky am I, right, to have this older man who is so great in the sport giving me this attention. And at the time when that was happening, George was like 38 or 40 or so. And that victim was like 16. Th- that's the victim that Robert Dover refers to. And being like, what? It's a different time. Robert Dover, like refers to those stories about that victim so at this time we're 2022 now there is no conclusion to these civil cases they're just sort of sitting out there i'm not sure what exactly the holdup is with them um if there's stuff that's happening behind the scenes i'm sure that like this stuff was you know in 2020 came forward i'm sure a lot of stuff was put on pause in 2020 because of the pandemic uh and that you know, George gets an opportunity to respond to these accusations. I don't know what his response will be. Uh, I don't, I didn't see anything published. But that's kind of where things sit right now. As far as George, like personally, George hasn't really been able to sit quietly and like wait for something to to happen. Uh, He's been out there testing his limits. (laughs) In June 2020, a video appeared on Facebook on Brookfield Farms. It's obviously now been deleted, but it showed George out in public at a recognized uh, three-day event. I think it was like half recognized, half unrecognized event. It's a war war horse horse trials here in North Carolina that take place at the Carolina Horse Park. I've gone to one of them. He showed up at one of those horse shows. And like it was videoed because I think someone was like, someone was knew he shouldn't be there. I think the show like immediately asked him to leave. They were like, sorry, sir. (laughs) Hey, you can't be here. But also it was during 2020 when you could not have spectators. The only reason to be there would be to be a teacher. I do strongly believe George is still teaching clinics. I strongly believe that he's still teaching lessons and traveling and doing all of that. Yes. Uh, Because that's what he's interested in. Like he wants to be in control of his students' lives. He talks about he wants to be in control of every little decision that they make or at least part of that discussion. But what he means is he wants to be in control and that I'm sure he's still out there doing a lot of these things. It, It just indicates that he's still out there teaching. Oh, absolutely. And I do think it should be pointed out, like, he is in his 80s. I think he's like 82, 83. He did come from an extremely wealthy family. I am sure he's financially fine and, like, doesn't need to keep working to pay his bills. So that is the story of George H. Morris. That is the story. That is the man that we were all told to emulate ourselves after, to that is who you should look at as the icon of the sport as the icon of horse care horsemanship who you should take after who you should listen to over other instructors that is the man we were told as kids that we wanted to be like yeah um and it turns out he was never a good person not from day one um was he good or did he ever care about the horses and so i think just that the lies we've been told to believe about him Definitely uh, 
enough people knew that they shouldn't have been pushing him on the next generation. Like that I think is what upsets me the most is that there were enough people who knew better and yet he was pushed on all of us as the next generation of riders, generation after generation, and he shouldn't have been. Someone should have stopped it way sooner. It's wild and it's so hard to comprehend because – You know, going into this episode, going into all this research, I really didn't know much about George Morris. I mean, I knew that he had been banned. I wasn't quite aware what exactly the allegations were. I knew it had to do with minors and sexual misconduct with them. But I didn't really know much about his history or anything about him. And just doing this research is astounding to me that he was allowed to be part of our sport for so long. But I think it... I mean, he was one of the most successful. I don't think there's another trainer out there that has had as many Olympians, medal finals, McClage, world champions as he, as he does. Right. And organizations don't care. If you're, if you're making the money, if you're bringing in the medals, you can do whatever the heck you want. And I think for USCF to act to act as soon as they did and the way they did and kind of like no going back and he did appeal and the appeal did not he did not win his appeal uh they knew it was time they knew that they they had to cut ties with him do you have anything else you want to add no that that's it that was a doozy i'm exhausted personally (laughs) i'm exhausted i'm sorry it doesn't have a it doesn't have a happy ending this story The, the victims that came forward have been treated absolutely horribly in a way they never should have well on that note guys thank you so much for listening um if you have any comments questions concerns please don't hesitate to reach out to us on instagram at in the barn dot pod or send us an email in the barn pod at gmail.com yeah we're getting ready to do a listener questions episode so if you've got any listener questions you want to send to us we've got we've got a list but any uh, last minute ads go for it remember to stay safe Stay classy and uh, what's the takeaway today? Well, stay in the saddle, but do it for the love of the horse. Do it for the horse for crying out loud. Treat your horse better than George Morris did. Let's say that. Yeah. just Which doesn't take much. Shouldn't take much to be better than George Morris. That's the moral of the story. Doesn't take much to be better than George Morris. <laughs> <laughs>